When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate is joined by Adam Steiner to talk about Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor, and the unique nexus of industrial, alternative, and pop music that existed in the 1990s. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Adam Steiner, the author of Into the Never, Nine Inch Nails, and the creation of the Downward Spiral. Adam, welcome. Hello. And so this was a, a really interesting book. We've talked about the distant past a lot on this show, but haven't done as much 90s, have done very little 21st century stuff. And Reznor, mm. Trent Reznor, the, the main man, the sole entity creating the music in Nine Inch Nails, is very much a transitional figure from one millennium to the next. Yeah, yeah. Um... And that's a really interesting perspective because it's like he has that um, weird kind of renaissance man um, of the 20th into the 21st century, as you say, um, where he crosses over between being a musician, but also um, kind of a, a, a sexual liberator in terms of the S&M aspects of his work. Um, weird kind of a style icon, sort of goth, but also industrial and then kind of neo-industrial or post-industrial, if you like. And then obviously all of his work relating to like music and technology with um, soundtracking, studio innovation, and then working with, um, you know, the Beats headphones. So it's really weird how he's actually worked in lots of different mediums um, and not just as a musician. Yeah, absolutely. And you... Um... You say that his greatest achievement is his greatest musical achievement is using the computer and studio as instruments in themselves and that that prefigures the end of music as it was defined in the 20th century. Can you elaborate on what you meant by that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think um, it's quite a grandiose statement, isn't it? <laughs> when I hear it read back to me. Um, <laughs> maybe I was overreaching, but let's see. Um, yeah, for me, it was just the fact that you, you went from um, the birth of uh, rock and roll in the 50s, 60s, and then you went <clears throat> all the way through the phase of hard rock and so on in the 70s. I'm not going to go through every decade, um, but just by the time you come up to 
Trent Reznor and um, you know the early 1990s, you've basically sort of had grunge, and then you've kind of like got what's next, and there's that um, weird pressure of like coming towards the millennium, and you know what is our future music supposed to be? And I think the way in which he, you know, really pushed the idea of the studio as an instrument, but also not just produced the record, but um, did so much work around sound manipulation and then found noise, ambient noise uh, of taking film samples and things. And then also just going straight out with like raw manipulation of um, instruments. So instead of perhaps saying, I will play a, you know, a straight chord progression on my guitar, it was more about, I will make some noises on my guitar that sound cool atmospherically and texturally for the kind of um, emotions I'm trying to evoke in this song. And then I'll take that piece of sound and manipulate it anyway in all kinds of strange ways, you know, pitching it down, making it slower, speeding it up twice as fast. And like that, I think that sort of like, um, should we say like, wise interference just meant a really different kind of music than what you had going on at the time um, because it was quite a sort of I think with the early 90s it was quite a sort of back to basics era anyway um, from the sheen and shine of the 80s and then you are, we are now with um, you know well into the 21st century and um, you have so much use of electronic uh, production equipment you know basic things like pro tools and um vocoders and things like that and auto-tune so the, the level of manipulation has almost kind of worked its way into music as an accepted fact um so i think that's a kind of like almost a the sort of end of music thing where so much of what we can do uh, now is artificial anyway not necessarily in, in, a, in a bad sense but um the idea of a bunch of people playing in a room together as a four piece and just recording it raw and live um, is just, yeah, I just don't think it's necessarily accurate anymore. And you've got a great quote that kind of elaborates on this, that Reznor's considered application of music technology prefigured the coming crisis of overproduced manufactured music that reduced playing to inputting and went far beyond the perfect and honest live take and press preference of dragging and dropping sound and auto-tuning bad singers to idealize perfection. I mean, a lot of people like Rick Beto, the YouTube musicologist say that rock and roll was mm. killed by quantizing everything, you know, where they, they take Nickelback playing live in the studio and then they sort of reconstruct it digitally so that every drum beat is perfectly in sync and every bar mm -hmm. is perfectly the same measure. And so, what Reznor was doing was a lot more organic than that. And, and I think the way it survived when so much rock that came after it, although, you know, one of the other claims you make in the book is that Reznor destroyed, I think you quoted somebody else saying that this album destroyed the idea of genres. But if you had to put yeah. Nine Inch Nails in a genre, it would be industrial slash alternative. Like he played basically live with a rock band, but when he recorded in the studio, yeah. he's doing you know, one man band inspired by Prince and the application of technology, especially samples inspired by Public Enemy, the hip hop group. And obviously Human League uh, was a big inspiration yeah. for him. You know, he says, you know, the, it wasn't the Sex Pistols for me. It was the Human League. And I was so excited by the idea that they did it all with computers and no human beings were involved. So kind of <laughs> yeah. prefigured the, the corner we painted ourselves into, but still had the freedom of the era. Yeah, yeah. I think um, a really interesting thing you mentioned there is the idea of it, um, you know, using a lot of machines and stuff, but it still sounds kind of organic. I think he talks about the idea of like, 
it still has um, a sort of human imprint, a bit of a heartbeat behind what he's doing. So it's it's using machinery, broadly speaking, you know, technology, um, electronic stuff, as opposed to the you know the element of the soul, to to make something um, that's still very emotive and, and human-like that people can connect to. And I think that's you know one of the great validities of music if it if it brings up um an emotional response as opposed to, you know, bile, um it's really, you know, it's what really gets to people and, and it stays with them perhaps and they get that emotional resonance, that sense of connection. But what you said was really interesting there is about the fact that um it's uh you know he's making stuff that still feels kind of organic. It feels kind of dirty and broken and and messy and things and that kind of fits into like the sort of post-industrial aesthetic of um, a lot of Nine Inch Nails stuff that's since become kind of a bit slicker, um, slightly more, uh, I think, like digitized, kind of working more on like glitch art and things, which is great because it's like very contemporary and sort of reflects the times. But for a long time, it was uh, very much about, you know, images of decay and like, um, you know, like pretty things like a butterfly or something crushed, made kind of dirty. Um, And that, that is also carried through into the music. You know, sometimes the music's kind of like messed up and fucked up and it sounds kind of like crappy, but it's sort of, it's meant to sound like that. So he really kind of like literally breaks stuff down or breaks it, if you like, um, and you get something like way more visceral from that. And I think that's what made him, like you said, a, a more of an alternative musician, more of a rock band than than someone who was just producing, you know, Wham! or something like that. All due respect to Wham! obviously. <laughs> yeah, yes, definitely. Especially after Christmas having just passed, you got to respect Wham. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but let's let's take a step back. I want to play it for a song so snippet, and this is kind of an obvious choice. But this is uh, had like a hole from uh, Nine Inch Nails' first album, Pretty Hate Machine. And that was Head Like a Hole, the hit single off of Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails' first album, Pretty Hate Machine. And, and and that introduces our segment of where did this guy come from? Like, what's what's Trent Reznor's mm. biography? He's from the deindustrialized Midwest. Yes, yes. Um, it's, a really, it's a really interesting backstory uh, simply because of its plainness and its commonality. And I think that's something we forget, especially with a lot of American musicians, where we... Um, in uh, you know places like the UK and Europe, um, if we were to put our like pretentious hats on, do we ever take them off? Um, you know, we're in the old world over <laughs> here. Yeah. Um, but you know, you guys like we kind of see um, America as obviously you know this vast big land of opportunity and uh, money and shine and things like that and glamour. So we always kind of like jump between the east and west. We're like, oh, it's either like LA, California, or it's New York. And you know, we kind of we're quite lazy. We kind of forget everything that's in between, which is you know millions and millions of people. Um, who don't live in those extreme kind of situations, but they're still the musicians that come out and make really extreme, intriguing, inspiring music. Um, so yeah, Resner um, from small um, farming town, Mercer, Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, he, he made the common complaint that I think a lot of us would, I'm from a small village in England, 
um, in the Midlands, a lot of us would say the same sort of thing where it's like, uh, I'm from a small town, nothing ever happens there, no one ever came from there, there's no opportunities, um, it's not necessarily grim, it's not necessarily bad. He talks about like um, endless fields of wheat and stuff. And in a way, you know, they think, oh, that's kind of cute, that's kind of nice, and then you also think, God, that also sounds really fucking dull. You know, what would, <laughs> what would happen to me and what happens if I stay there? You'd probably become a farmer and that is your life, so you, you kind of value the wheat, but, um, you know, for some people, that's okay, that's what they want to do, and his really common complaint always amused me was, um, you know, he's like, oh, I don't want to, like, spend the rest of my life pumping gas, like, wondering what I would do with myself, and, like, gas station attendant comes up, I think it's, like, his recurring nightmare um, of what might have happened if, like, he didn't actually latch on to music, and so he went over to... Um, you know, Alheny College, I forget where it is, it might be Cleveland, um, did a little bit of like um, computer science. I think it's Allegheny, actually. Allegheny, thank you. Oh my yeah, God, yeah. I would never have that. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he, he did some studying, which I think along with, you know, his um, classical piano training as a kid, not that he was like a child prodigy or anything, um, you know, kind of combined, and he was in like the school jazz band, I think, kind of combined to, you know, give him like rough, ready skills and intuitions of you know the possibilities of music so he wasn't just some guy who like learned um loud punk rock electric guitar in his bedroom um he you know already his like uh perspectives were slightly widened than that and um yeah he went along to cleveland in ohio and um was working as a dog body in um what was called the right Tra- right track studios and uh, i love to just love the stories about how the boss was like oh when he cleaned the floor he really cleaned the floor and uh you know he was basically like mopping and helping out and just he once again absorbed things picked things up um eventually became a studio engineer um which is you know quite an involved role with lots of button pressing and stuff without the authority of the producer and then he was you know he got like the nights of the studio to himself to work on his demos for what i think was quite a long time and on the strength of those demos you know he got the deal with um tbt and that led to pretty hate machine so i think it's quite a sort of inspiring um it's not even rags to riches it's just like you know someone making something of themselves and basically doing it all on their own. And you kind of see that line carried through. He's a really collaborative guy, obviously given all the projects he's done, but yeah, from, from starting, he's basically like the one man auteur. Um, so yeah, it's really impressive stuff. Absolutely. And you left out, he played, he did an apprenticeship as a keyboard player in a number of new wave bands and cover bands in yeah. the Cleveland area. And, and <laughs> I was know, doing as, him a favor there. Yeah. <laughs> I was but kind of skipping over a bump in history. <laughs> attempted that, you know, and failed. It, it's impressive that he shrewdly figured out that that was not how you're going to get places. And, and he, you know, gets the yeah. studio time very cleverly, hires a publicist, has this bidding war. And it's so funny that he ended up with TBT because this was a record label that was very profitable, but really what they were known for, Steve Gottlieb, the head of that label, they put out TV's mm. greatest hits, which was a set of CD sets, co- compilations of <laughs> TV theme songs. So this wasn't somebody who's used to working with artists or cultivating careers. This was somebody who was very into shrewd calculations of what would make money. And he was right yeah. with with Reznor. You know, I think Pretty yeah. Hate Machine did, went gold in its initial run. 300,000 the first couple of years and then went gold shortly thereafter. But Golly and Reznor never got along. In fact, Golly called the first mix of that album an abortion. Talk about the, yeah. the contractual problems that Reznor got into with Golly after that record came out. <laughs> sure. So obviously, you know, a bit of friction um, with the abortion comment, not the kind of feedback you want to hear. It, it's really amusing. Even now, I think it's like, it's just this thing that uh, Reznor's had to bury 
uh, and just not address because it, I think it stirs up lots of stuff in him. And it's like a really difficult, uh, it was a really difficult turning point when he's like, I'm trying to get my career going. And this, you know, this label guy is basically trying to control and manipulate me and like steer my um, creative direction. And all he really wants is someone to put up the money and help put the record out. Um, and it's like, it's really strange because, um, you know, I think it started off well. And maybe maybe the case is, as you say, TVT is such a weird label to even bother uh, approaching or like going with. Maybe TVT was the only one that came back. I don't think there was a huge, from what I know, I don't think there was a huge bidding war. Even though um, the band was considered very hot from like some of the live shows and stuff they were doing. It was still basically uh, Resno in the Right Track Studios, you know. So um, <clears throat> it's interesting how that came about, and I think that part of the schism was like uh, Golly like put off put a lot of money and effort, and there was multiple studios, like including um, sessions in London, and then four different producers uh, who I, to be blunt, I had to look up because they've done a lot of really cool, interesting stuff, but really different things. I think like um, Adrian Sherwood, uh, John Fryer was one guy, and then two two other blokes. So. Yeah, I can run through that. It time. was Adrian Sherwood, who's best known uh, for U2 and New Order. Mark, no, Mark Floyd Ellis was the guy from U2 and New Order. Adrian Sherwood was known for Ministry and Skinny Puppy, which, and those are the bands that are uh, commonly cool. seen as the biggest precursors of Nine Inch Nails as quote unquote industrial bands, um, although mm-hmm. they, they were both quite sonically less song oriented and more edgy than nine inch nails flood ellis with mm-hmm. new order and you too and also depeche mode uh john fryer from 4ad records the sport of coil depeche mode cocteau twins and keith leblanc who was a drummer and played in t- tack head but had can't come up actually playing on sugar hill sessions back when rap groups like the sugar hill gang would rap okay. uh, in wow. front of a live band so and treasure and drummers are always that's the one instrument that he really never felt competent to play so there's if anybody's going to be playing on a records it's generally a drummer and and you mentioned the live band it's also i think important to mention right from the get-go it's in the studio it's mm. tresner solo live it would either be a power trio a tresner on guitar tre- on guitar and a bassist and drummer or add a keyboard and eventually added a second guitarist as well so a three or four piece group um yeah, with the yeah. sound man sometimes doing backing vocals which is an interesting <laughs> touch but yeah uh, yeah and so there's this tension with gottlieb and then you know, Rezzo's work ethic is always inspiring, and immediately they were out on tours, headlining tours, but also open for Skinny Puppy, Jesus and Mary Chain, Peter Murphy, and gets to the cycle that Reznor referred to as his life being that I'm a music creation performance machine. Talk about that and how that impacted Reznor's psycho- psychology. Sure. I mean, I think... Um... As you're saying, like, I think, like, there was pressure from the record company for the record to perform, but also I think there was, like, self-inflicted pressure as well. So, obviously, like, the common thing, and in some ways it still hasn't changed with music to some extent, um, even with download culture, is that, you know, bands need to get out there live and build their audience. Certainly it was truer back then because you didn't really have, uh, you know, the internet as um, full-blown as we do. And, um, yeah, he was obviously out there touring and things, but um, it's really interesting how he kind of had to, build and augment the band as he went along um because obviously the the sometimes the equipment would fail you know like with the playing the bits of backing tracks and stuff so um yeah the the live sound came out of that and um i think he he talks a lot about how they toured really hard um all the way through until like you know 90 91 92 and then the the broken 
mini album slash EP came out. <clears throat> so that's a really long period from the release of um, the debut record and then loads of touring. And I think that sort of paid off in terms of them being a really, you know, seasoned, experienced um, group, you know, on stage. Um, but like you say, he, he kind of entered into that really strong work ethic of um, covering all those bases at once <clears throat> and having lots of creative control and having a really clear, really clear direction in his mind of where he wanted to go. And that's where I think the clash came with Gottlieb because Gottlieb's sort of like, oh, this won't sell. It's not, it's not quite commercial enough. And because Trent was doing something that bit different, that bit new, it wasn't synth pop. It wasn't pure industrial as we, you know, as we know it then. Um, that it was like harder to see the harder to see the true potential of where it could go. I'm sure he didn't necessarily know this himself, but I think touring is the way to certainly that time. Touring is the way to make it happen. Um, and off the back of that, you know, that attracted um, loads of other people in the future to him. Absolutely, and and the one gig that we didn't mention from that cycle of touring was Lollapalooza '91. This was the first Lollapalooza tour, headlined by Jane's Addiction. Mm. You know, featuring uh, Living Color, the Butthole Surfers. It's very much one of the legendary tours of the early 90s and really, I think, gave Resonant Nine Inch Nails a big platform and a lot of credibility. But let's hear a song from Broken. Uh, this is Happiness and Slavery. a song off the broken ep called happiness and slavery which references obviously his interest in, in s&m sexuality but also his relationship with gottlieb and he uses that term slave frequently and um and the sound is very obviously a clear break from uh, pretty hate machine which some people have called you know a dirtied up human league i remember what <laughs> as a as a as a teen when i bought that EP, I was expecting something like Ministry's Land of Rape and Honey or Skinny Puppy based on the, the the buzz I was hearing about Nine Inch Nails. And when I got my hands on it, I was massively disappointed, although I found myself, you know, playing it a lot to my friends. It was a good party record, but but it was not the, you know, vicious noise machine I was craving at the time. And Broken, on the other hand, I think went a long way to restore mm. his credibility in that. But it's not something he did in a calculated way, unless he was maybe calculated to piss off Gottlieb. But he actually had to record that EP in secret to keep Gottlieb from interfering with it. And then meanwhile, a guy named Jimmy Iovine with uh, Interscope Records is calling Gottlieb every day, trying to get a uh, Reznor's contract. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a really weird time, isn't it? And so like, it was a natural thing to break with Gottlieb and TVT, you know, to almost go to anyone. But like Jimmy Iovine, you know, Interscope, really strong record, loads of financial backing behind him. And it obviously, it, it, given the fact that he was so doggedly pursuing Resna, uh, you get the sense that, you know, he would have um, given a lot, <laughs> a lot can switch over. And it's fascinating because Iovine obviously saw the wealth of um, potential in Resna's future recording career. And it's, it's amazing because he couldn't necessarily have I don't know, off, off the back of that, there's two records, you know, um, he couldn't necessarily have foreseen what was to come, which is like a really great, you know, really great credit to him to give Reznor that opportunity. 
um, and support him so much. Um, and that's the thing with with Gottlieb, the the issue around creative control. As you say, he said, um, President said the, the the ongoing lawsuit, which I think actually you know was drawn out for quite some time, added so much pressure and stress and made him um, quite depressed and angry. And a lot of that actually filtered through into the broken record. And there's these crazy things about with um, uh, you know on the the LP version, there's like something in the run out groove about like. Um, uh, eat your heart out, Steve, or something. And then in like the credits, it's like um, something like oh, I can't remember now. It's like big thanks to um, big no thanks to this person. You know who you are. Like it's almost like you know obsessive serial killer kind of territory. <laughs> like, I will get you one day, um, but for now I'm just going to keep making my music and these, these veiled, strange, non-threat in like slightly passive aggressive language so yeah it really did seem to eat him up inside um and obviously making the jump to iovine and recording the broken uh ep in secret it just gave him actual creative freedom which is what he felt he needed to to go somewhere and and Ivan cut a, a win-win-win deal ultimately, although I'm sure Reznor <laughs> wouldn't like the idea, but Gottlieb got half the publishing and the proceeds, not just from Nine Inch Nails' future, future records mm-hmm. up through the end of the 90s, but you know Reznor's deal with, with Interscope was the creation of a new record label, Nothing Records, which – you know, he signs Marilyn Manson and has massive success with that. And Gottlieb got half of all that as well. So it was a very expensive mm. uh, situation for Reznor. Um, but yeah, ultimately, yeah. you know, he got what he wanted, which was the freedom to create. And let's talk about the, the way they promoted Broken uh, through video and, and their struggles to get the videos that they made to promote Broken seen by an audience. Yeah, that was a really strange situation. Um, it's interesting, you mentioned early on about um, the different producers uh, that Resnick was keen to work with. And when you actually hear the bands play back to you, it's kind of like, okay, this is perhaps uh, the sort of DNA of Nine Inch Nails. And um, the, the who's who element of that, you know, includes um, an essential act, um, Coil. So, you know, um, Peter Sleazy Christofferson, um, formerly of Throwing Gristle, you know, um, his his presence in, in Coil and as a, a video director as well. And obviously his background in, um, I've completely forgotten the name now, the company that did the artwork for Pink Floyd. Um, hypnosis. The designer. Yeah, Thank it's you. Hypnosis. Not <laughs> um, to be confused with the... With them company that's buying up everybody's publishing rights now which was named after the as a as a tribute in some bizarre way to the graphics company but go ahead okay um but no thank you because it is important and so um yeah you know the the connection with coil and stuff he um he got peter christopherson into um direct a few uh nine inch nails promos from around that time and what's crazy is like resonance you know he's a big sort of like slasher movie horror fan um from things like um, the Hellraiser films and the books as well. Um, and, you know, even just going back to, yeah, the slasher films of the 80s, he um, he was really keen to work with someone someone like that um, who was willing to push the envelope a little bit, you know, coil such a strange experimental group and really on the alternative fringes of what could be defined as music. Um, 
Resner, you know, did some some film work with them, and you'd think you'd just have a series of straight videos for some of the songs off of Broken. Because if I remember rightly, Broken, because it was kind of like an EP thing, I don't think it was actual singles, but there were there were videos in support of the music. So it's another way to get it out there, and people obviously go and buy the EP anyway. And um, they ended up collating, you know, three or four videos into what became known as the Broken movie, somewhat notoriously. And this was basically a kind of unshowable. Um, unshowable film reel of the videos and then uh, intercut with some strange sort of narrative around um, someone who kidnaps someone and then takes them away and tortures them in really uh, graphic, violent, brutal, cruel, demeaning ways um, based upon the um, the film Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which is actually about a real guy. Um, I don't know if anyone... Know if a real guy who that. lied about um, all his crimes, but that's an aside. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. He killed loads of people, but... Uh, well, he, he claimed he killed more, loads right? of people, but it turns out that he probably didn't, and the police were using him to close up cases <laughs> they couldn't solve. So anyway, but that's that's an aside. But um, yeah, and the, and the broken film... I remember that was being passed out bootleg copies on VHS, the same trading network mm. that was trading things like, you know, the Frank Zappa groupie who did horrible things with a flute or Chuck Berry uh, violates fans in, in utterly disgusting ways. And and so, uh, you know, it was stymied because it was very hard for him to get it released. It's not the kind of thing that they would sell at Walmart or whatever, but um, it was out there and it, it sort of added to the buzz about Nine Inch Nails in my perception and the credibility, but yeah. And um, and I want to break real quick to hear from our sponsors. And when we get back, we'll actually start talking about the creation of the downward spiral. And so he's at a point where he's secured his freedom, essentially, or enough freedom to make the music he wants to make. He's uh, been touring for years. He's broken up with a longtime living girlfriend. He's essentially homeless, although he's got plenty of resources. Tries living in New Orleans and looks for studios to record. For whatever reason, he ends up leaving New Orleans to go to Los Angeles. The story is he saw 15 different houses in one day, picked one, and uh, then he gets a mailer advising him, you know, this disclaimer that the law requires them to send out, that there was this horrific series of murders committed in the house, or one one horrible night of murders. And it's it's not just any murder. This is the Manson family. This is the Sharon Tate house where members of the Manson family murdered Sharon Tate and JC bring the celebrity hairdresser and Wojtek Frykowski and Abigail Folger, the Folger's coffee heiress, uh, and as well as uh, a kid that just happened to be in the driveway at the time. And so it's this, you know, one of the most notorious sites in U.S. history. And obviously, given Reznor's background and, and pre-elections, you want to it's, – it's just strange credulity to think he didn't know that was the house, although it's also entirely plausible if he's, you know, in a hurry and he's looking at 15 houses in one day, he doesn't know his way around L.A., and the house obviously doesn't have big signs on it. Um, <laughs> so – but anyway, he finds himself in this infamous house that's now been demolished – uh, I think was, he was one of the last residents of the house, but spending eleven thousand yeah. dollars a month to live there and record. And from the get go, the, the project is behind because you know it's supposed to take a month to build a studio. It takes three months because Reznor decides he needs to learn how to build a studio himself. He's got <laughs> professional help, but you know he's in there. And and the portrait of Reznor that comes through is one of just 
an absolute workaholic. I mean, he's, he's spending a minimum of 14 hours a day working and living there in the house. He says he hates LA. He, he never goes out, never meets anybody. So, so it's basically <laughs> him and a handful of collaborators, um, you know, working on this flood. Ellis is back. Uh, his sound man, whose name is Sean starts with a B. Uh, Bevan. Bevins. Yeah. Is, is there. Um, and initially he, uh, offers his guitarist the opportunity to contribute songs to the record, but that doesn't work out at all. And in fact, writes a song called Piggy about Richard Patrick after that falling out. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird origin story. I think that, um, I, I think from what I've read and researched, I think the, the Richard Patrick story is perhaps the most credible. And I think obviously because the song um, is a weird kind of like, uh, for me, a weird kind of meld of like relationship breakup um, and almost kind of like a, an alternative, I will survive in terms of, um, I think it's the, uh, it's the second moment on the album where the line, nothing can stop me now, um, is introduced and actually closes the track. Um, and it's this weird vibe of, you know, going through, uh, the breakup of an emotional connection with someone that might not be necessarily, you know, uh, a, a sexual relationship. Um, and it's a, it could be a close friend, someone like Richard Patrick, long-term collaborator. Um, and it, it's a really weird story because you think how close these guys were. And in essence, um, the way Patrick tells it is that John Malm, the manager of the band, um, was sort of saying, look, you know, maybe you should go down the road, um, get yourself a job, pizza delivery place, keep yourself ticking over while we're doing the record. So he was really kind of like, almost like kind of being nudged away, felt quite disassociated from the process. Um, and what he learned was, you know, if he was chipping in pieces of music, he wouldn't necessarily see any royalties from that process. He wouldn't necessarily be credited. He would just be, uh, well, as the, the songwriter, he would just be another musician who happened to perform, you know, within the songs as if he was playing a gig. And um, I think he felt really uh, disenfranchised by that and perhaps slightly betrayed. So he went off to um, go and start the band Filter and had you know good success with that. And I think <clears throat> I think in some ways I got the impression that Reson actually kind of encouraged him to go and do his own thing. And it was perhaps a sense of because it was quite a one man show and Reson needed people to do X and Y as and when he needed them to, as you can get an engineer or a producer or something to, um, you know, help you fulfill your vision. Um, the idea of an extra guitarist, unless they're going to lay down some amazing solos or something, um, you know, they're not strictly necessary to the process. Um, and I, yeah, the, the reason for the, the term piggy apparently just comes from, um, a sort of nickname that got bandied around in sound checks and stuff. Um, and it's that weird sort of connection with the Lord of the Flies culture where, you know, in, in the film, I'm sorry, in the book, <laughs> William Golding Fook, um, he's the, he's the weaker, more vulnerable character who's sort of exploited. Um, so I don't know if Reznor actually meant it as a reference to that, but the association still kind of comes through, obviously. And, um, yeah, Richard Patrick was just the kind of person who seemed slightly, um, isolated, pushed out of the process and there wasn't really a place for him anymore. And, um, yeah, that's the theory about where Piggy came from. Uh, one great thing to mention, you were talking earlier about drumming. Um, I think that's Reznor's only, as far as we know, um, recorded, um, performance on drums. Certainly an excellent one where he basically creates the, you know, the outro of the song and just tried to go as wild as he could on the drums. And it's really weirdly together, 
slightly sort of falls apart. The rhythm kind of collapses, but it's also sort of on purpose. And he kind of lets it happen and just goes with it and then kind of brings it back and then, you know, brings the song to a close with the big bass hits and the crashing cymbals and stuff and the Nothing Can Stop Me Now line. So it was actually, it's actually an amazing drum performance, especially as he makes it into something slightly weird, slightly avant-garde and experimental, um, but still actually keeps it all together. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of that drumming from uh, Piggy by Nine Inch Nails. was Trent Reznor playing drums on the song Piggy, which was uh, not dedicated to, but perhaps about his relationship with Richard <laughs> Piggy Patrick, who, who tried to resist the nickname. Nobody wants to be Piggy from uh, Lord of the Flies. But one of the other collaborators that came in was Adrian Ballou, the legendary uh, hotshot session guitarist and member of King Crimson. But Ballou is somebody who played on David Bowie's Berlin period albums, particularly Low, which was one of the load stars for this album, one of the, the signposts that Trent Reznor followed very much. Can you talk about a little bit, and obviously Reznor would go ahead and collaborate with Bowie, but one of the things I thought was fascinating was sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy of being fascinated with somebody like Bowie in that period, because that's when Bowie had become, he'd, he'd lived through the thin white white duke phase of maximum mm. cocaine use maximum isolation maximum celebrity i mean you know got so whacked out of his mind and so obsessed with the occult and nazis that he's photographed sig heiling people coming out of a limo and weighs about nine <laughs> pounds and is living on uh milk and limes i think and 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 uh, peppers peppers yeah green peppers and, and milk and and um yeah that will keep you from getting scurvy but <laughs> not much else but you know then he goes to berlin and records a series of albums produces two iggy pop albums and cuts four albums on his own and mm. Reznor ends up in that same boat where after you know up to this point he'd been very available to fans and very excited to have fans but not only is this self-loathing that you mentioned becomes introduced and is it's not there on the first album. The first album is I'm coming from these bleak circumstances, but I can get through this. But by the time of broken and especially the downward spiral, he's really not liking himself. And you have to think that the life of hedonism of being a traveling rock and roller contributes to that. What's your take on that sort of hall of mirrors? You know, I got everything I wanted and it's living hell phenomenon. Yeah, it's a it's a really weird contradiction, isn't it? Um, I think I think it's the as you mentioned earlier, like the kind of the grind of the touring process um, actually wears wears rock stars down. Even though you you kind of feel you're having a great time and like this is the best things can ever be, and you you know you probably are to some extent, but you're um, you're completely disconnected from uh, everyday reality that everyone else is living, <laughs> which is I guess kind of why they're at the shows. Um, but you know it's that um, it's that Pink Floyd the wall element where um you know the character pink is just in his own little bubble and kind of allowed to bounce around in this strange uh unreal universe and go crazy and um 
you know it's the fact that like when you're touring you're constantly moving you never stay anywhere you don't stay anywhere that comfortable you're not settled hard to build up meaningful relationships so obviously casual sex i'm sure is uh, freely available give or take um but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean anything and obviously the ways in which people like you or um let's say care about you is is fleeting and it's built upon uh, the image of the persona as well they don't really know you they're kind of in love with you on stage or maybe even just the music and you happen to be connected to the music so i think those things um kind of grind musicians down along with like <laughs> if i may be so boring like you know bad diet and um obviously drug intake and not enough sleep and things like that so you're kind of just car crashing uh, in a lot of i think a lot of hedonistic um, musicians like you're kind of car crashing from gig to gig so like the show's amazing but you know you're not doing anything else you're not paying your bills you're not keeping anything together uh in normal in the normal sense and you might happen to make some music along the way um and that's kind of it you're just going hand to mouth so to speak so there's a slight sort of uh, i think desperation to that um which could unsettle you know many uh sensitive individual but it's just the fact that um you know, along with that, um, Reznor's using uh, past experiences from his life to reflect upon his views on, you know, religion and relationships and things like that. And that obviously informs um, the content of the downward spiral. And once you get into that kind of um, negativity, the um the you know the trajectory is often um negative and it doesn't necessarily go anywhere it's like nihilism in itself it doesn't really have an end it's sort of as far as you can take it to the point at which you can take no more so um yeah i think he kind of got himself stuck in um a situation uh, mentally from which there wasn't any um clear way out but to keep on going yeah, and, and I'm glad you brought up Pink Floyd because, you know, we've talked about his new wave influences and his industrial influences, but arena rock, you know, as a Midwesterner who grew up in the 70s and 80s, Reznor, of course, was exposed to and loved Kiss, Alice <laughs> Cooper, and Pink Floyd, you know, who would come through with these epic spectacles of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the wall and and. and animals and and that sort of thing and so Reznor's live shows were very much influenced by that sort of strain of 70s theatrical rock and it was uh you know a fusing of influences and it, the timing of this record's release it's it's long delayed and and in the record biz press you know there was a lot of tutting about you know Iovine's wasting his money and you know there was rumors mm-hmm. of drug abuse and and you know Anytime you, you give somebody unlimited money and time, you, you have the risk it's going to turn into Axl Rose and Chinese democracy and take 20 years to come out or never come out at all. You know, the Brian Wilson's album that takes ages to make. Yes. Yeah, so or Brian Wilson's Smile, which, you know, a lot of people love as a masterpiece, but it took 40 years to officially be released. So, but yeah. Reznor does deliver the goods. The album comes out, does very well right out of the gate, ultimately sells, you know, goes uh, quintuple platinum, sells 5 million copies. And the timing of it is just perfect. It comes out just a month before Kurt Cobain kills himself. And I've spoke with author Adam Caress about the way the record industry seized on that to end mm. the kind of aesthetic free-for-all that had been going on. I mean, you had the record companies were just signing everybody because they had no idea what was going to be popular anymore. There's this huge variety yeah. of bands uh, and, and acts of all kinds that are suddenly massively successful. Hip-hop bands, grunge bands, you know, alternative bands like the Pixies that don't have anything to do with grunge, industrial, <laughs> having, obviously. 
and and you know Reznor sneaks out right in that window before the clampdown comes, and it's only going to be Candlebox and Nickelback and Blur and bands that are exactly like Kurt Cobain uh, that get promoted. <laughs> and and you know, but he's also sort of riding riding a wave. There's a whole list of bands that you put together that put out these very dark, grim albums around the same time. Alice in Chains, Dirt, obviously, is one. Pantera puts out mm-hmm. an album. STP, the Deftones, and you really focus in on the Manic Street Preachers and their album, The Holy Bible, and then the fate yeah. of Richie Edwards. And, and, you know, to me, it's like Edwards and, and Reznor are very much parallel figures. They're both pushing it as hard as they can. They produce these works that their fans regard as, you know, the, this is their ultimate masterpiece statement. But Richie Edwards doesn't come back from it, and Reznor does. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? And it's like on the surface, the, the two bands actually don't have a lot in common because it's like um, Reznor takes a very, um, I think, universal, instinctive, uh, you know, approach to like big emotions and feelings and uh, and kind of human situation, whereas the Manics took a, a really the opposite, you know, kind of like pop culture and also highly intellectual, very um, literary, you know, referential um, kind of path where it's all about kind of like context and um and connections and things like that of ideas so the, it's weird that those two sort of things yeah i think those two things do sort of run um quite well in parallel because um as you say like richie edwards and trent Reznor, they kind of had that like shared trajectory um mentality of like questioning what is everything worth and when you strip away more and more layers um which is what Reznor talked about as the concept for the Downward Spiral, you kind of see that there isn't much there isn't much there left. And when you run out of things to believe in, it's hard to take, um, I think it's harder to take a positive stand on your life and find um, find value in uh, in the future and to see where, you know, to see where you're going with anything because what's worth pursuing. And, you know, it, you can say there's like art for art's sake, but if you're deeply unhappy, it's also really hard to get out of bed in the morning and, and carry on with that, especially if your work itself is on the darker side of things. Um, and it's interesting because like some people don't have any um, idea about the manic so they never really broke America and so on. So it's, it's a weird, um, it's a weird connection for some people, but you know, the, the, the downward spiral and the Holy album, they both have this, um, the Holy, the Holy Bible. Have, uh, sorry, yeah. the Holy Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Some people consider it the Holy Album, but it's... <laughs> and the Freudian slip, isn't it? It's, like, it's one of my favourites. Um, the, the Holy Bible has that, you know, very stripped back, really harsh, dry, um, not like rough, underproduced aesthetic, but just like very lean, very clean, um, sort of sound, very post-punk, um, like public image limited kind of thing. Uh and I think, you know, the Downward Spiral has some of that too, um, because it's not about necessarily making things sound, um, once again, really slick and shiny and, um, as you say, perfectly on the beat and so on. Um, but those two, those two records share this kind of like cadaverous, um, harsh mental landscape. And what's, what's really rough on the listener, and I think on the two, you know, the two key architects behind those albums is... Um, the, the when you take on board that kind of mentality it can be quite uh it can become quite a dark um uh gravity inducing sort of uh situation to put yourself in but you know when the record finishes hopefully you think 
you reflect upon that and you say, well, that was interesting and it took me to a certain space, but you know, so well, I enjoyed it. I got something out of it. It resonated with me and I had some cathartic experience. And now I go and go on with my life and things. I think what's challenging is sometimes that not the record itself influences people in this way, but it, um, it kind of um, sometimes overshadows, overshadows people and they kind of carry it with them, which I think, you know, really happened to someone like Edwards and, uh, to some extent, Resner, to which they couldn't shake it off. You know, it wasn't just about persona. It was just about, oh, fuck, this really is me. And it's like, what kind of person am I? Yeah, and so many of his contemporaries, Scott Wheeland of the Stuntable Pilots, uh, Lane Staney of Alice in Chains, end up Odin, mm. Dimebag Daryl of Pantera is murdered after an ugly interband feud inspires, you know, a fan, uh, somebody thought they were a fan to murder the legendary guitarist. Yeah. And so, you know, and there's this tr- wake of tragedies in the in the trail of this album and and you can't blame the album but you know mm, the columbine yeah. massacre happens in colorado and a lot of people do blame music marilyn manson really took the heat from it but so did nine inch nails and yeah. you've got a quote in here about the the album's nihilistic imperative the empowerment that comes when there's no fixed meaning or higher authority in the universe and you know you're playing with fire when you're when you're thinking about ideas like that and you're putting them out there, especially to an audience of young people who mm-hmm. are frequently, you know, sort of a self-selected troubled youth coterie in a lot of ways. I mean, that's the cliche, but if, if you read like Daphne Carr's book about Pretty Hate Machine, where she interviews multiple Nine Inch Nail fans, that's a constant yeah, theme yeah. that this music spoke to people because they needed it in their lives because their lives were pretty bleak. But I want to I want to turn and talk about the closer video because he takes a very different direction after the experience of Broken, where he just did what he wanted to do <laughs> yeah. and creates this video so nobody can see. He works with Mark Romanek and does this video yeah. for Closer, which to this day I still cannot believe was just a staple of MTV at the time, but it absolutely was. Tell us about that video and how that broke through. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's it's an amazing um, like vault fast, isn't it? It's like it's real contrast to what he was doing before and I, I you can sort of feel his frustration because i think like broken movie was like a real experiment and kind of a fuck you is like how far can i push mtv and so on it's like, oh they won't show it the video is weird the video was never actually um i don't think it was never actually banned it's just they're like oh we're not going to show it do you know what i mean it's like they just wouldn't accept it it wasn't like an appropriate format and so on and it was 20 minutes but still um yeah. you know when when he came to closer it was like okay let's try and go the other way and let's do something genuinely artistic but let's try and do it really um you know not even not even cliche the opposite let's try and do something really well put together um conceptually rich um really like powerful images still and still you know challenging and evocative of lots of kind of transgressive themes of s&m and so on and just you know uh let's say violence like or um uh inherent violence and um and, and death and so on and decay. Um, and let's put that out there in a, in a much like shinier sort of presentation with someone who really knows what they're doing and has an amazing track record. So I think even like, you know, the reputation of Romanek was, um, was useful to that. Um, but even then they went like really crazy with it. They shot it in digital and they shot it, um, on vintage film stock, I think from the 1920s. So there's, you know, a hand reeled camera and the stock's really expensive. And if you fuck it up or you wind it too fast, you know, it messes up. Up the recording so they you know they really went to town on trying to do something amazing and they spent a lot of money on it um and there was a contentious point at which um Reson was saying uh you know that 
there's an uncensored kind of version, which is a bit more graphic and so on, which I think featured some um, anatomical illustrations of female and male genitalia, not even in a state of corrosion or infection or anything, just like, you know, this is part of our human bodies. And that was a little bit too much just because it was um, sort of on the nose for MTV. And um, he was like, oh, fuck it. So what, we ended up like making like two versions of the film, <laughs> you know, like slightly edited and stuff. But what they did was really funny where they just kind of like... Um, with the closer song itself as a single, they just kind of like gapped out the the, the swearing of the fuck, and um, they just kind of put like a censored, um, you know, uh, title card up instead of some of those pseudo graphic images, um, which were you know explicit as in honest and true, but weren't necessarily anything um, horrific or contentious uh, to people's general sensibilities. So uh, yeah, the video was an amazing achievement, and it, it really stuck in people's imaginations. You know, there's so many things that I can sort of like reel off the top of my head, which involve like Reznor, where he's like naked and sort of strung up with the ball gag, and then he's like in the wind tunnel, um, and then he's like being spun from the ceiling. And it's great fun, the video. You know, it's really great fun. Uh, it's really visually arresting and it jumps from thing to thing. And yet also it kind of lingers where it's necessary. Has the wacky little heart sitting in the chair that's being like sort of, you know, pumped away by wires and stuff. Um, there's a monkey on a crucifix. The monkey was not harmed. I think all the listeners will be glad to know. There's just so much like amazing stuff in there. Um, so I think even if you didn't necessarily like the song, which is, you know, it's a really groovy, um, funk driven song. Um, you, there was so much like cool stuff you could see in the video. It was kind of a visual feast. So having other people like, oh, we're a band and here's us playing our instruments in a room and being really real, it doesn't really compete in terms of, you know, artistic um creation so that was the that was the great achievement of closer it was something um really interesting and challenging but it didn't have to be disgusting or provocative for its own sake and let's hear one last song and then talk about the influence of this album on other people and and this is one of the songs that had the biggest secondhand impact and this is hurt by nine inch nails to see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle is a hole The old And that was Trent Reznor's Hurt from the Downward Spiral album by Nine Inch Nails. And that song's probably most famous as a Johnny Cash song. And and it was <laughs> made famous in a video directed by Mark Romanek, who did the, the Closer video. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the circle's connected. Rick Rubin produced those Johnny Cash albums and, you know, got got Johnny Cash covering Danzig and Soundgarden and so many other artists. And, and he really had to write the letter, the lyrics to that song down on paper to show to Johnny Cash to Johnny Cash couldn't get past the, the sound of it. And, and once he got the lyrics and he absorbed it, creates this version that Trent Reznor described as it was like having your girlfriend stolen. Like, you know, it's it's very much like the way Otis Redding described here in respect once once Aretha Franklin sang it, you know, damn, that girl stole my song. Like, 
you're not getting it back after a performance like that. And that was obviously Johnny Cash is one of his last, I think his last release before he died. And, and you know, anybody, I remember when yeah. I first saw that video and having been a Johnny Cash fan my entire life, it was this sudden painful realization of, oh my God, Johnny's going to die real soon. And, you know, it's just mm. so powerful. And, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, and I think it also gives, it validates Reznor's songwriting in a way because that's the real test of a songwriter, you know, like an Irving Berlin or a Paul McCartney. That's somebody that you know can write a song that it's not just their version. That almost anybody can sing this song, and it's still going to have some magic and some power. And when you get somebody like Johnny Cash that can really bring yeah. power and life experience to it, um, it's incredible. But I want to talk, get you to talk a little bit before we wrap up about the other groups that were influenced by um, by Nine Inch Nails, and and you break post Nine Inch Nails rock into three categories. You've got new metal, emo, and what you call the new rock revolution. And you, you bag on new metal, which everybody does, but two <laughs> out of those three categories did have big Nine Inch Nails influences and one of them didn't. Tell us about that. <laughs> oh, it's really hard for me to nail down now. Sorry, pun. Um, but I mean, like, it's, it's complicated, isn't it? I mean, the, the new metal thing, it sort of just came at a weird time for me. Um, at the switch of the millennium and stuff. And I was like, I was just so unimpressed by people like Biscuit and so on. Like, I, I think you could sort of like give them credit as like a band that had clearly worked hard and stuff. But I just thought their songs and their, um, their, their attitude was so bad. Um, but then you, you had other sort of like groups that were of that generation. Like for me, like for example, like I really liked Incubus. I think they're, I think they're actually kind of quite unfashionable now. Uh, but I thought like, you know, the guitarist, like Mike Eisenegger was amazing uh, and his use of effects and stuff. So yeah, it really was a mixed bag. And then um, emo was sort of like one, one side of the musical spectrum in the early, early 2000s. It sort of took over that decade in some ways. Um, there was like, you know, lots of different groups, um, lots of different groups. And I think the one sort of thing they took from bands like, Nirvana, Nine Inch Nails, and, and a lot of stuff that from, from the 90s was just the ability to be more emotionally open and direct in their songs. And so it allowed for a breakdown of what we would now term as sort of the toxic side of masculinity. Not to say that masculinity is in and of itself toxic, because that would be, you know, damning half the population. Um, but just the, obviously the, you know, the idea that um, music, and um lyrics and uh the the persona of the musicians involved has to be aggressive and um possessive and um controlling and so on which is the kind of thing you got from limp biscuit you know they're sort of like uh their active misogyny and chauvinistic attitudes are just like yeah <laughs> and yet they awful. they, they but, um, adapted that extremity as an aesthetic and that's the phrase you use in the book mm -hmm. that, that they they carried that torch from the grunge bands and from nine inch nails and ministry and others of just this idea yeah. of we're going to be as extreme as possible whereas groups like the white stripes and the strokes and the hives that were critical darlings around the turn of the century turn of the millennium mm. As you point out, they're essentially a retro movement, and it seems like Nine Inch Nails had no impact on them. And I, and I think that was self-conscious of those groups at the time. They were going back to punk and blues, and but yeah, it, it does seem you know have, having done this show for so long and obsessed about music history that the more retro a group is, even if it's seen at the time as really bracing and powerful, it doesn't. They tend not to have as much of an impact on future groups, and I think that's very clear. You can see where mm, mm. the emo 
bands, you know, that are very influenced by Nine Inch Nails are then very influential on the SoundCloud mumble rappers, like people like Little Peep and and Kodak Black even and and you know, so so this this kind of extremity and being on the cutting edge sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that goes forward. And we don't have really time to go into much of Reznor's post <laughs> downward spiral life, but he, he does another massive album, The Fragile, which is kind of his uh, sign of the times or whatever, the big epic sprawling masterpiece. Yeah, yeah, that's a great comparison. Yeah. And and then and then he battles his own demons and falls into addiction himself and then comes out of it and is a successful soundtrack creator. So there's there's kind of a happy ending. And he, he didn't go down the Lane Stamey path or uh, the, the Richie Edwards path. And he found a life and mm. redeemed himself and, you know, soundtrack work on the social network directed by David Fincher. And also want to mention he inspired uh, Fight Club that Chuck Palahniuk wrote that listening to the Downward Spiral. So Adam Steiner, the book is Into the Never, Nine Inch Nails and the Creation of the Downward Spiral. Really had a fun time talking to you. Yeah, cheers. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's one of those it's one of those crazy albums where it leads off into lots of mad tangents, uh, <laughs> which I guess is why it became a book. Um, but yeah, no, thank you very much, and like I really appreciate your questions. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate will be back with R.J. Smith to talk about Los Angeles in the 1940s and the role that the city played in the birth of rhythm and blues, bebop, and gospel. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. Into the Never, Nine Inch Nails and the Creation of the Downward Spiral is available from Backbeat. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. 
FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.